Beloved, all the world is a hospital. Every person is a terminal patient. Death is inevitable. Death brings grief. Job, as he was lamenting on his ash heap of sorrow and contemplating the death of his children and his own mortality, said, My eye has also grown dim because of grief, and all my members are as a shadow. But grief is not necessarily bad. There is a grief from the Lord. There is a good grief. There is a grief that is right and appropriate. And there's no better example than this than the man Jesus, the man of sorrows. As God says through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, there is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time when everything stops. But for a Christian, this kind of grief is not a paralyzing grief. There is a good grief and there is a wrong grief. There is a distinction and a difference between grief and despair. There is a distinction, there is a difference between hope-filled grief and hopeless grief. With that, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing to this church of new believers, this mature church, which is an example church. And he's writing several months after he and Silas and Timothy had left them. And during this time, some of these young believers, these new believers had died, they had departed, they had passed away. And so even though this church was a mature church, an example church, they had concerns and questions that the apostle had to write and address. And this is, beloved, what Paul had to say. Our passage this morning is verses 15 through 18, but I'll begin reading in verse 13 to capture it in its entirety. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Beloved, this is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, the concern of the Thessalonian believers to whom Paul is writing is, as they were thinking of their loved ones who had died in Christ, will they miss out on something? Will they be second-class citizens? The church understood Paul and Silas and Timothy had taught about Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his vicarious death at the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the tomb, his ascension to heaven, and 
He had taught that he is coming again. And so their concern was, what about our loved ones who have gone? Will they miss out that they're, because they're not here when he returns? And this is what Paul addresses here. Now, beloved, in the vast majority of time, almost always, whenever I have an outline in my sermon, it's my outline that I got from the text. I try to make it in a fashion that can be easy to remember, but the meaning of the text is king always. And this is a case where John Stott in his commentary came out with four points that capture the entirety of this passage. And in my study, I couldn't think of a better outline than these. So the four points that Stott came up with are return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. Now, what I'm capturing, the plural noun is my own. I'm calling these four great hopes. These are four great hopes that God gives, that Paul gives to the Thessalonian believers in the face of the death of their loved ones, that God gives to you and me, even as we would consider loved ones, husbands, wives, parents, children, friends, relatives that may have passed and gone on who have died in Christ. And the intent here is that this truth, these truths, these hopes would plant and strengthen steadfast, immovable hope in your heart and my heart. This is instruction how to hope in God when dealing with that which man fears most, namely death. So the first great hope, beloved, that God has for you and me in this passage is the great hope of the return of Christ. Now, Paul has already dealt with this. Of the eight chapters of these two letters to the church in Thessalonica, the first seven, he deals with the second coming of Christ. This being chapter four, he's already dealt with this three times. So he's picking up the topic again, but what he does here is he's focusing on this with the application to the context of death, and he adds more detail, he adds greater detail, and he even adds details that the church had not heard up to this point, and in fact, cannot be found anywhere else in Scripture prior to this writing. And what he says, look at the beginning of verse 15, he says, for this we say to you, for, so in other words, everything he said, the promise of hope that he talked about back in verses 13 and 14, that little word for connects what's coming here with that. This is the reason why we can have that hope that he talked about. He says, for this we say to you, and by what authority does Paul appeal to here? Is this the sawdust of human opinion? Is this educated guesses? No, Paul's authority here is the divine revelation. We say to you, by the word of the Lord. You see, the world for that church is just like the world for us now. The world for us, beloved, is unraveling around us like a cheap sweater. It's imploding. And there's nothing new under the sun. That was the same that they had back at that point. And so those Thessalonian believers, you and I, we need a word of certainty in an uncertain world at an uncertain time. And that is what God has for us here. Now, when we think of our situation, when we lament the trajectory and the downward spiral of the world Think for a moment about the church there. They were, these believers, as I've said before, they were an eye of calm and peace and hope 
in the swirling hurricane of grotesque immorality in Thessalonica and the Greco-Roman world. And even more to the point, he's writing to a group of beleaguered new believers. They didn't live in a country that had some level of influence in history around Christianity. There were a few Jewish believers in this church, but the vast majority of the Thessalonian believers were Gentiles, so they had no history whatsoever of Christianity or of even God's dealing with the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. Chapter 1, verse 10, it says that they had turned away from their idols. And Paul is writing to this group of beleaguered believers, first century Christians who were and seeing people be torn in two, have their heads chopped off and eaten alive in the arena. That was the context where Paul writes these words for comfort and for encouragement. And they don't need meaningless platitudes. They don't need merely kind words. It's good and right and appropriate at a celebration of life service like Carol Palin yesterday for us to give kind words to people. But beloved, what these believers needed, what you and I need, we need something we can bank on, something we can trust in. We need something that we can die for with courage and with hope. And so Paul, again, doesn't put the sawdust of human opinion into their hands. He doesn't put the froth of emotional sentimentality. He puts the iron doctrine of the truth of the word of God into their hands. Because, beloved, understand this. Dear friend, understand this. It is only through true knowledge based on the word of God, that one can have true hope. That's why, look at the rest of verse 15. He says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, understand in this entire passage, Paul is only talking about believers. He is talking about the fact that Jesus is coming. He's coming for the five wise virgins. In this context here, he's not coming for the five foolish virgins, borrowing from Jesus' parable. So he's speaking only of believers, and there are only two kinds of believers here in the text, those who are dead and those who are alive. And what he is saying here is, Those who have passed away will not, will absolutely not be second-class citizens. In this passage, there are a number of emphatic statements, and that is what he uses here. The New American Standard translates it as, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. But it is the strongest form of negation you can get in the Greek language. They absolutely shall not fall asleep. Now, In the Greek language, in the biblical Greek language, you could say no in three different ways. You could say may, or you could say ooh, or you could say ume. Now, to help you kind of understand, imagine a young man going to a young woman to ask her out on a date, or to ask about courtship, if that's your flavor of language that you like to use. And let's say he goes, and the woman responds to him and says, uh, may, the Greek may. What that's saying is that says no, but yeah, you maybe, maybe ask again. You know, maybe that might change. Or you might get the response, ooh. And that means, no, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, you can try again, good luck, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> or he might hear, ooh, may. And what that means is, no, not in a million years. <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> I don't like the way you look. I don't <laughs> like the way you smell. And you better start running because I'm reaching for my pepper spray. 
absolutely is not happening. And beloved, that is precisely what Paul is saying. He is saying here, there is absolutely no way that your dead loved ones will suffer or miss out on anything tied to the glories of heaven and the blessings of God, including the glorious second return of Christ. You see, the Christian dead, the Christian dead will come with him. And as we continue on in our passage, the Christian living will join them in the clouds in the air. And the point here is that no Christian living or dead is excluded in any way. This is part of the unbreakable solidarity in the body of Christ. And this is part of the unbreakable solidarity we have even in the love of Christ. I had chosen Romans chapter 8 for our scripture reading earlier. I won't read the entire passage as we did before from verse 28 forward, but I would remind you verses 38 and 39. There Paul said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And beloved, what we have here, as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, is a manifestation of that unbreakable solidarity of the love of Christ. But as we continue on to verse 16, we have another emphatic statement from Paul. Look at what he says. He says, for, and you just see him adding purpose and reason from verse to verse as we continue on this path of joy. He says, for the Lord himself, emphatically, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. His point here is Jesus is not sending some intermediary. He's not sending some interlocutor. He's not sending an assistant. He is coming himself. He is coming personally. He will come himself personally. And as we continue to unpack the riches in this passage, he will come personally, unexpectedly, suddenly, loudly, dramatically, globally. Loudly, we continue. He says he will come himself. He will descend from heaven with a shout with a divine, universal proclamation, mark this, resounding with authority and urgency. Uh, this shout that, is, look, that he puts here, it could also be understood as a cry of command. It was a word that, for example, one who was driving a chariot might cry out to his horses, or a hunter might issue a command to his pack of hounds, or the captain of a ship would cry out a command to the rowers, or the commander of a military force would cry out and shout out this command to his soldiers. And it's the same kind of dynamic that we see even in the Old Testament, going in the other direction. In Psalm 47.5, beloved, you'll read these words. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. So there, the Lord was ascending with a shout, with a trumpet. Now, what Paul says here in our passage in 1 Thessalonians is the Lord will descend with the same shout. And then as we continue on, we, the next two dimensions of the voice of an archangel and a trumpet basically spell out how this, mark this, heavenly summons to awaken the dead will occur. This is, again, a heavenly summons by God to awaken the dead in Christ. It says, he continues, with 
the voice of the archangel. <clears throat> in the New American Standard, you might notice that the word the is in italics. It means it's not in the original language. So it could be understand with the voice of an archangel. <clears throat> now, in scripture, there are three angels that are named, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, Lucifer before the fall. Uh, Michael himself, in Jude verse 9, Jude only has one chapter, in Jude verse 9, Michael is called an archangel. And it's possible that Gabriel was an archangel as well. We don't know that for sure. And beloved, one of the points here, and let me pause and go for the side here. When we approach eschatological portions of scripture, portions of scripture that deal with the end times. We want to be very careful. We want to be obedient and good students of the word and understand and not minimize what God is saying in any portion of it. But we don't want to try to fill in extra details that God doesn't spell out. We aren't newspaper exegetes. We're not trying to find out and identify who Gog and Magog and Diddlygog are. Okay? We want to go where God goes with his word and no, father and no further. And so I like this here because God has, there's kind of a divine vagueness here, even in the language. The point is, the voice here, it could be the voice of Jesus himself uh, as an archangel, with a voice like an archangel. It could be the voice of Michael, the one archangel who had identified. Uh, Gabriel even though he's not identified specifically as an archangel, he seems to be more of a messenger type of angel. So the point here is we're not sure what this is other than the fact this will be loud and this will be dramatic. This summons to awaken the dead. But beloved, the main point here beyond even that is mark this. The voice of the Lord gives life. The voice of the Lord puts life where there was no life before. Think of the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. And Jesus came and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And you can imagine the crowd, the unbelieving crowd at the time, they would say, now we know this Jesus is crazy because he's speaking to the dead. And we know based on our experience that the dead can't hear. But, beloved, dear friend, again, the voice of the Lord gives life, and so Lazarus came forth. And perhaps the crowd said, what manner of man is this that even the dead hear his voice? Or we could go all the way back to the very beginning in creation, and God spoke the entire universe into existence. The Lord spoke, and light and life came into being, because the voice of the Lord gives life life. And that is part of what was behind what Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 25. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. And there is an already not yet aspect to that. Uh, from a spiritual standpoint, every single one of us here who are in Christ, every born-again man and woman in Christ here, God spoke through his word and put life where there was no life before. And we spiritually came into being in a new life with a new heart and a new birth. That's the already part. And there's a not yet portion. There will come a time when this mighty shout of command with the voice of an archangel accompanied by a trumpet will speak and the physical resurrected or the physical bodies will be resurrected and that dimension of life will come to be 
And that even gets to the last element, which I already mentioned, you see there, and with the trumpet of God. Now, <clears throat> the trumpet of God, trumpets in, the, in Scripture, certainly in end times passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, but other passages as well, there were a variety of different trumpets with a variety of different meanings. We can think of Sinai. When the nation of Israel was around Mount Sinai, we read in Exodus 19, verse 16, Moses writes, It came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, why was it that they were trembling? They were trembling for the lightning flashes, for uh, the thunderclaps, and for those dimensions as well. But the main reason, beloved, the main reason, dear friend, because the trumpet meant the Lord is here. The Lord is here. That is what this trumpet of God says in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord is here. Uh, one of the purposes of some of the trumpets in Scripture is they were judgment trumpets. For example, in the book of Revelation, in the unveiling of Jesus Christ, when he comes back as the conquering king, in chapters 8 through 11, we see different trumpets there sounding. Those are judgment trumpets. But the trumpet here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not a judgment trumpet. It is an assembling trumpet, an assembly trumpet. This is a cosmic wake-up call for the sleeping bodies of the saints to rise from the grave. And notice this, when we think of, in a certain way, this is the beginning picture of heaven, at least for the full physical bodies of the saints. The believers who have departed to be with the Lord, just like the thief on the cross, when Jesus told him, the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So, for some 2,000 years, as we would mark time here on our side, not sure how they mark it in heaven and eternity, for 2,000 years, that repentant thief has been with the Lord spiritually while his body remained, all the molecules remain here on earth. Carol Palin, that we had the celebration of life service, she is with the Lord now spiritually. But there is a future coming. And so when we think of heaven, notice here that God doesn't use, this is not the soothing melody of a harp. This is the thundering blast of the trumpet. And this trumpet, this great shout and cry of command, this voice of an archangel will be arresting and it will be electrifying on this day. Martin Luther, the German reformer said, I only have two days in my calendar, today and that day. And beloved, what a day that will be. No guilt in life. We will sing these words at the end of the service. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Watch this. All until he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. Till he returns or calls me home, here's the application, here in the power of Christ I stand. Here in the power of Christ I hope. Here in the power of Christ, I trust. So that's the first great hope, the return of Christ. Beloved, the second great hope in our passage is the resurrection. Again, one of the concerns of the Thessalonians was their loved ones would somehow miss up. 
miss out. What Paul says here, they won't. They won't be second-class citizens. In fact, what we see here, they will be first in line. They will be given an order of priority. He continues, verse 16, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. I mentioned last week, if you were here, I had never really grappled with and really taken in the beauty of that phrase, the dead in Christ. That's the only place in all of Scripture right here that that appears. God takes the fiercest enemy of man, death, and he turns it into something beautiful by virtue of the grace and mercy and salvation we enjoy in Christ. The dead in Christ shall rise first. What Paul is saying here is those who died in Christ are still in Christ. Those who died in Christ will rise with Christ. They sleep in him. According to verse 14 we saw last week, they died in him, according to this verse 16, and they'll rise with him here in verse 16, and then again back to verse 14, and they will come with him. They will rise and come with him in their resurrected physical bodies. You see, when we think of the body, very often, even in the best of Christian circles, we sometimes have kind of a semi-gnostic perspective on the body, where we think the spirit is primary and the body is just kind of an afterthought. No, beloved, you and I, we were made body and soul. That is who we are. And we can even think of the illustration of Jesus Christ in his resurrected body. He ate fish. That just shows, that's just one way that shows the physical nature of his corporeal being, of his body. We are body and soul. And this doctrine of resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, and what that means is the doctrine of your and my future resurrection, that is cardinal. It is essential. It is primary. It is absolutely non-negotiable. Because, dear friend, Without the resurrection, there's no faith. There's no salvation. There's no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. Without the resurrection, the incarnation is pointless and the crucifixion is tragedy. Every preacher's a liar. God's a mocker. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, our faith is worthless and all preaching is pointless. But... But there is an empty tomb. Jesus did rise from the grave. So when we ask the question in the dimension of a, of a wife or husband, father, mother, child who went before us, why do we believe that that which was laid in the ground, that which was burnt in the cremation chamber, that which was cast in the sea, why do we believe that could ever be brought back? Because of the empty tomb in Calvary. Because of the resurrection of Christ. Beloved, your body, the body of your passed away loved one, belongs to him. And he will reclaim it from its decomposed dust. That is the promise of hope and the message that God has here. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the immature church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 2.4, said this. He said, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal, watch this, may be swallowed up in life. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, we could think that maybe that what is mortal will be swallowed up in what is immortal. But I love it. What is mortal may be swallowed up by life, eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, Paul there said, each in his own order, speaking of the resurrection, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Uh, the first fruits, he's coming off of the imagery of the first fruits offering in the Old Covenant sacrificial system of Israel. And a first fruits offering would do two things. It would consecrate the rest of the harvest, and it would guarantee the rest of the harvest. And what Paul is saying there is that Christ's resurrection as first fruits consecrates your future resurrection and guarantees your future resurrection. Because he died, because Jesus died, was buried, and rose as a man, he became the firstfruits of all who will be raised to glory. And, beloved, the risen and resurrected Christ will be accompanied by his raised and resurrected people. He will bring his gathered people with him. And he will gather them from here, there, and everywhere. That is the great hope of the resurrection. There is a third great hope, the great hope of the return, resurrection, now the great hope of the rapture. And this is where all my pre-tribulation, pre-millennial brothers say, okay, yeah, this is, and sisters, this is what we've been waiting for. Uh, Early Tuesday morning last week, I was uh, running, uh, it was an early morning run along in South Portland, along the water in South Portland, Maine. I'd flown out to Boston, drove up to South Portland, Maine, drove down to Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, came back on Friday. And as on my early morning run, thinking about this passage, uh, with a smile on my face, I thanked the Lord that I had a fundamentalist pilot that believed in a literal airport with a literal landing strip. Or I can think of the fellowship that we had yesterday at the men's breakfast around the table and uh, Cole Michaels, who's in engineering, and we were talking about a structural engineer. And when I drive across a bridge, I'm glad that I had a literalist a structural engineer that believes in the literal laws of physics and a literal bridge. Now, beloved, the reason I say that with a smile is there are different camps towards an understanding of end times. And we have representation within our body here, and I love it. That is beautiful, and that is blessing. There is a line of separation, not of fellowship, but there's a line of interpretation that leads a brother and sister to one side or the other. And what I hold to here and what the leaders hold to here and what is taught from the teaching platforms from the pulpit here basically follows a historical, grammatical, literal, normal, consistent, hermeneutic approach to Scripture in all passages of Scripture, including prophetic passages. Now, one of the nice things about going through books of the Bible is, as I've said more than once, these are the eschatological epistles, so I'm not going to try to dump the whole load right here. We'll try to go through this. And again, the most important thing here is, with every passage we deal with, we want to go as far as the Lord goes and not go any farther. So just understand that, that a normal, literal, historical, grammatical, consistent hermeneutic is what lands us on the way in which we understand these passages. So our responsibility is to go as far in detail as God does and no farther. farther. To fall short of doing that, to minimize or draw back from the jot and tittle of all of scripture is to really 
rob comfort, to go beyond, to start filling in things that we ought not that goes into the realm of senseless speculation. Let me say this too. <clears throat> I don't really think that everybody was kung fu fighting. <laughs> but, there's a point to that. <laughs> but I do believe that every Christian believes in the rapture. Now, hang with me and let me expand on what I mean by it. All Christians believe God's wrath is coming. All Christians believe that believers will be rescued from it. And all believers, every Christian believes the Lord will catch us up to himself in the air because that's what this passage says right here. And this passage, there is theology here. He's laying out this theological foundation by way of comfort. But the main thrust, the main emphasis is more pastoral than theological. So when it comes to the word of God in its entirety, and also maybe even especially to end times passages, we focus and rest on absolute verities, not pet theories. That's most important. And the point here is this. The dead in Christ will rise first. We saw that in verse uh, 16, and that is before the events of verse 17. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain. Now, Again, there are only two kinds of believers, those dead and alive. And what we have throughout our passage, we have unavoidable language. We have inescapable language. We have namely temporal language and spatial language. Verse 16, first, then. This is temporal language. And this is spatial language. There is an upward thrust. We're meeting in the clouds in the air. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, the appearance of the Lord, the coming and going of the Lord is often accompanied by clouds. We see this in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel has a vision of the ancient of days, the son of man will come in clouds. In Matthew 24, <clears throat> in the Olivet Discourse, we read that Christ will come again accompanied by the clouds. Revelation 1 verse 7, there John writes, behold, he is coming with the clouds. So there's a temporal language in 1 Thessalonians 4, and there's a spatial language. And the spatial dimension, these are literal clouds. We have to understand them as such, if for no other reason, how this is a fulfillment of a promise that was given from the lips of an angel at the ascension of Christ back in Acts chapter 1. Uh, you can listen or you can turn there, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. After Christ gave words of promise in verses 7 and 8 of Acts 1, we read this beginning in verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, watch this, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That was the promise from the angels at the ascension, and the realization of it is what we have here. We, shall, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. The word caught up, it's the Greek word harpazo. It describes the sudden forcible taking someone or something, like a snatch, a seize, like a thief or a wild beast. 
It's the Greek word harpazo. There's the Latin word for that, repere. And we get our English word rapture from the Latin repere. And that is why I said every Christian believes in the rapture. Some Christians may kind of bristle at uh, that word because of some of the baggage that's around it, or it might even be used to represent something not quietly aligned. But again, every Christian believes the word of God, and this is what the word of God says here. And this is the same kind of getting caught up that, for example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4, twice was caught up to the third heaven. And to maybe give you a picture of what this looks like, imagine a beautiful toddler that is going out into the road and a mother or father comes and grabs the toddler and snatches suddenly, almost violently, but in a, in a forcible way, out of that harm's way. That's the kind of picture and imagery and word choice that God uses in this. Beloved, this is the sudden snatching away of believers from this present misery and rescue from the coming wrath of God. So <clears throat> he's coming personally, he's coming loudly, he's coming suddenly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, Paul there wrote, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And again, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's including himself in we who are alive and remain in 1 Thessalonians 4 and also here in 1 Corinthians 15. And he is basically understanding that this could happen in his lifetime. Paul, we, we should not take this and say that Paul expected the second coming in his lifetime, but it could come in his lifetime. And one of the questions we can ask is, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will remain. And the natural question will be, well, how long is that? Is that, is that a attosecond, a nanosecond? Is that two seconds, 10 seconds? Is it 10,000 years? And the text is silent on that. And maybe some of you have been around for a while. I've, I've heard all kinds of goofy things trying to explain what that time duration is. This is another example where God does not tell us what that looks like. But I will say one thing, even as I was pondering and thinking about what that duration might look like, we can think, I would say that from our perspective on this side of eternity, it would probably be a pretty short time, but again, the text is silent. But for those who are dead in Christ, again, is that one second, 10 second, or 10,000 years? In other words, one might say, well, 10,000 years, so they, they would get to, you know, on, on whatever time is marked in eternity, they would get to be with the Lord 10,000 years longer than us. But beloved, eternity forever. After 10 trillion years, that really wouldn't matter. But let me wind myself back in. Beloved, he will come personally. He will come loudly, suddenly, and he will come imminently. Because the Apostle Paul groups himself as we among the alive with this expectation, what he's saying is that it could happen at any time. From a prophetic standpoint, since the ascension of Christ, there are no prophetic events that need to take place. He could come at any time. This is describing, this is the doctrine of imminence. It's the same type of theology that John had when he opened up his book of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3 John wrote, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Uh, again, this is one 
book out of the 66 books in the Bible where there's a specific blessing attached to the one that would read and hear and heed these words. But there's one more phrase that John has at the end of the verse. He says, for the time is near. John wrote that 2,000 years ago as we mark time in our world, in our universe. So he says the time is near. Does that mean that John was wrong? No, because John wasn't saying that he's going to come in this X amount of time. What he's saying is he could come at any time. Again, this is a doctrine of imminence. And this is the same type of dynamic. By the way, it was the same doctrine for the first coming of Christ as the second coming of Christ. Uh, in Malachi, the last book in our English ordering of the Old Testament, Malachi 3 verse 1, in describing the first coming of Christ, this is what you will read. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Hebrew grammar is why they translated that, will suddenly come. So the doctrine of the first coming of Christ for the old covenant saint after Malachi was imminent. He could come at any time. Same thing that we have here. And beloved, on this side of the cross in the new covenant, the result of the imminent return of Christ is a pre-tribulational rapture. But the point of the doctrine of imminence is not the pre-tribulation rapture. The main point is readiness, is calm, is composure, is trust, is hope. So he will come personally, loudly, suddenly. He will come imminently. He will come unexpectedly. Uh, next Sunday, we get to chapter 5, verse 2, we'll, we'll see that his future coming is like a thief in the night. And the comparison that Paul is making there, he's not comparing Jesus to a thief, he's comparing the coming of Jesus like the coming of a thief. It's not expected. So, beloved, you and I will be, well, you and I, if we are alive when he comes, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, the verse continues, 17 at the end, to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the word meet, that's used of citizens going out to meet a coming king. And this is another place where we see, besides the temporal dimension of this passage, this is part of the spatial dimension of the passage, of going up the clouds and to meet them in the air. And there's significance there. It's spatial and it's spiritual. Why is it spiritual? Satan is called, Satan, the devil, the accuser, the adversary, is called the prince of the power of the air. The demons, his demons hold power and sway in the air. And that's part of the reason why when we understand that Jesus will meet his redeemed saints who are dead and alive at the same time, he will meet, he will have this gathering on the home turf of the devil and his minions to demonstrate his power and authority. Beloved, the Lord gives his divine, will give his divine command to evacuate his people before the divine assault on earth, before the wrath of God is poured out. That's why back in chapter 1, verse 10, we read the words, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. That deliverance is for the eternal wrath of God in eternal hell, and that is also delivered from the wrath that he will pour out in the end times on the earth. In chapter 5, verse 9, uh, next week, if I do cover all 11 verses, God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. And this is the same pattern that God gave in the Old Testament. God always delivered his people and will deliver his people before his specific wrath is poured out. Noah and the flood, Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Rahab and the destruction on Jericho. Or God told Ezekiel when the nation of Israel was doing animal and sun worship in the temple and throughout the city and the land, God told Ezekiel to go through the city and mark the men who sigh and groan over the abominations being committed by rebellious Israel before he would pour out his judgment in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. So again, this is part of God's rescue of us before his wrath. And This is a fulfillment of the not yet portion of an already blessing we enjoy. Uh, When Mike Frazee brought the good word yesterday morning in the men's breakfast, uh, one of the passages he went to was Ephesians chapter 2, where there the apostle Paul talks about the already dimension or one dimension of the already blessing that we enjoy in Christ. Ephesians 2, 6, we have been raised up with him. And we have already been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, that's the already portion. The not yet fulfillment is what we see here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. So, return, resurrection, rapture. The final great hope, beloved, that God has for you and me in the text is reunion. A beautiful reunion. To be sure, the place of reunion, the air, is important for the reasons we just covered. But the permanence of the union with each other and with Christ is even more important. This momentary encounter that we just read of leads to everlasting eternal fellowship. That's why he says, the end of verse 17, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We saw the reunion of the living and the dead, and we see here a union with the Lord. Jesus, your Lord, went before you. He's prepared a place for you. He's coming back to get you, and you and I will be with him forever and ever. That's a state that is unalterable. That is a state that is unchangeable. That is the eternal steady state. And even that is a fulfillment of another promise from Jesus, John 14, verse 3. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And beloved, the we here, the we at the end, the we from Paul at the end of verse 17 is all comprehensive. That is the dead and the living in Christ, the one united company. And in this one united company, in this great union and great reunion, there will be a recognition of the departed loved ones and a reunion with them. You see, we rightly emphasize, we here at Santan as Christians, we rightly emphasize that when we go to heaven, Christ will be the focus, not our departed loved ones. But There is tremendous emphasis in this passage, in the immediate context of this, on the reunion with the departed loved ones. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamt I held you in my arms. 
When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken, so I hung my head and cried. Beloved, you may have that thought in your heart when you think of a departed wife, a departed husband, a child, a parent. Beloved, that is not the end of the story. You might think of the song A Thousand Miles, I'd walk a thousand miles to see your face. Imagine for a moment, if you could, for one night, you could see that loved one again. You could be with that loved one. You could take, expand it. You could have one night where all of your loved ones, the ones you love on this side of eternity and the one on that side, could all be gathered together. And then let's throw Enoch and Melchizedek in the mix. Moses and King David. The Apostle Paul, Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. And we can find out who the author of Hebrews was. He'll show up too for one night. Now, beloved, multiply that by eternity forever and ever. What a reunion, what a union that will be. That's the hope that God gives you and me in the holy pages of Scripture. Someone once asked John Wesley why Christianity was spreading so fast. He replied, because our people die well. Beloved, the doctrine of the rapture is not to write best-selling fiction novels. It's not to speculate. It's not to exegete the newspaper. It's in Scripture so that we might comfort one another with these words. Paul sets it in the context of practical daily living. You see, eschatology is not meant to be a theological sword for theological battles. It's for the encouragement and the comfort of the saints. It's meant to encourage you and me and to encourage us to the very core of our beings. Not with meaningless platitudes and mere kind words, but with the sure word of the living God. That's why he says at the very end, briefly, verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Words can and do comfort if they are true, if they are gentle, and if they were said at the right time, seasoned as with salt, according to the opportunity and the occasion. You see, whether we live or die, we do not go beyond his power. Even in the face of death, the enemy that no human can tame, by God's grace and mercy, we remain calm and triumphant and, mark this, have abiding hope. Because At our conversion, he illumined the dungeon of our experience. And we laid hold of his goodness and mercy, and we were brought into the light. And in that day, with a thundering shout and the blast of a trumpet, the Lord will split the sky, blast open the graves, and claim all of his own. That's a good thought to close our time in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. Again, Lord, we praise you because you are holy. We praise you, Lord, that you do not and will not tolerate sin and rebellion. And Lord, we praise you and are eternally grateful that you provided a way of escape, Lord Jesus, by coming to earth, by your sinless life, by your voluntary agonizing death at the cross, by your victory over the grave. We thank you for your ascension to the right hand of the Father, for your interceding for us even now and for the certain promise that one day you will come and come again and what a joy what a day that will be lord help us to live our lives in light of these great truths in hope and trust and joy it is for the glory of your honor lord jesus that we pray and that we sing amen